Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The image most of us have of someone who sexually abuses children is of an adult man. But according to Samaritan Safe Church, an advocacy organization for sexually abused children, 30 to 50 percent of child sexual abuses are committed by offenders under the age of 18. Samaritan Safe Church has partnered with the Center for Children's Justice and the law firm of Gibble, Crable, and Hess to present a series of workshops to discuss the identification of at-risk youths, prevention of abuse, and how to report abuse and navigate the legal process. Joining us to discuss this topic today, Linda Crockett, director of the Safe Church Safe Places at Samaritan Counseling Center. Ms. Crockett, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Can I get you to move the microphone a little bit closer? There you go. Uh, also, Kathy Palm, who is director of the Center for Children's Justice. Kathy, always good to see you. Good morning, Scott. And joining us also is uh, Ann Martin, an attorney with Gilbert Crable and Hess, who specializes in abuse, abuse cases and Title IX issues. Ann Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Linda Crockett, I'm going to start with you. I mean, this is a, a terrible topic that uh, we are discussing and that uh, child sex abuse, I should say, a terrible topic. It uh, is, a, is a shocking, appalling topic for many people, no matter uh, the age of uh, the perpetrator, the age of the victim. But it is particularly disturbing when we're talking about other children, those under the age of 18. It is, and I think that child sexual abuse is probably one of the most uncomfortable topics for adults to talk about. If you want to clear a room <laughs> in any social setting, start yeah. talking about sexual abuse. Probably the only thing that's even more tough is when we're talking about sexual abuse that's perpetrated by a child. But we really need to, if we're serious about preventing child sexual abuse, take a hard look and dispel some of the prevailing myths that are out there. And one of the myths is exactly what you said, Scott. We believe that most offenders, almost all offenders, are adults. And we have in our minds a stereotype of what they look like. And we've had to do a lot of work over the years to dispel the myth that stranger danger is where we need to focus because most children, 90%, are not violated by strangers. They're violated by people they know and trust. And in that same way, um, we need to understand that probably around 40% of all children who are sexually abused are not molested by adults. They're sexually violated by another child, usually a child within their circle of friends or family or their social setting. So we want to dispel that myth. And another one that's out there is that these kids who act out inappropriately in a sexual way are many adult offenders and they're on a trajectory to become pedophiles. And that is not true. Kids act out sexually in problematic ways for multiple reasons. We'll talk about that more later. And they are also far more likely to benefit from even short-term appropriate treatment. And they are no more likely to grow up to be offenders than the general population. So we need to interrupt that path to perpetration by recognizing what is problematic in kids. So what motivates kids then? And, you know, perpetrator, let's put some words out there, define some words, because they're actually, when we're talking about this issue, there is a definition for a perpetrator. I was about to say offender. What word, I mean, there are several different terms that can be used here because there are several different types of 
children under the age of 18 who commit these acts. That's true. That is very true. And one of the problems when we use the language of perpetrator to label rather than describe this child has perpetrated some inappropriate sexual acts on another child is we get into the zone where we made you harm by labeling the child as an offender or as a sexual predator, and we don't want to do that. At the same time, we don't want to minimize the harm done to the victim because kids who are violated by other kids are very traumatized and very harmed. But when we look at um, what sexually, what, what is sexually problematic behavior, we'll look at behavior that is um, developmentally, it's occurring at a much younger age or with far more frequency than would be developmentally expected. It becomes a preoccupation for the child. It doesn't stop when adults intervene and say, this is not okay, I don't want you to do that. And it exists on a continuum. It's not a specific act, but it's a continuum of behavior, starting with what I described and then moving into problematic sexual behavior is behavior that causes emotional or physical harm to any child including the child that's doing the behavior. It can involve and often does involve children of widely different ages and abilities. And it involves any type of coercion, force, bribery, manipulation. It's not lighthearted and spontaneous and exploratory. Um, when it is discovered, the child who's perpetrating the behavior tends to be more shame-filled, more fearful, more anxious. Mm -hmm. uh, Kathy Palm, I saw you nodding vigorously <laughs> as Linda was uh, was talking about that. Well, I think that's, that's the key is um, everything that Linda said is that this is a tough conversation when you're talking about sexual abuse in general. But if you think about the recent report from the Auditor General and just how under crisis our child welfare agencies are, now imagine there's this whole little pocket of, of work that's happening that um, we already struggle to find people who can understand should this be reported, if it is reported, is there really resources to deal with both the child who has had something done to them and the person who perpetrated, the child who perpetrated the act. Then there's the, is there any trauma? Like, can you find counselors? Can you find people who really understand this? And even when we do prevention, it's tougher because, you know, it, we were talking about this earlier that in some ways, you know, parents are uncomfortable thinking about their child in any sexual context in general, let alone their child in a sexual context where um, sometimes this is um, same sex. Um, and so now it's like, wow, I'm not comfortable with my child having any sexual relationship. And now you're telling me that they had a sexual relationship with another a person of the same sex. There's just so many different elements of it that on the mm -hmm. prevention the intervention, the treatment, we have struggled to get much of that right and, and available when the offender is an adult and something's done to a child. We have really not explored what it is for child to child. It's also very interesting in the sense that what Linda talked about, if you look at research studies, when, you, when kids are asked or someone who is a survivor of sexual abuse is asked, did it matter who the offender is? They will say in unavocable terms that they have the same reactions. They have the same level of trauma. They have the same need for counseling because it was an offense against their body. It was an offense against their spirit, regardless of who the nature of the perpetrator is, particularly if it's another child or youth. And Martin, is it accurate to say that some of the rules, some of the laws, maybe even some of the treatment here is murky is i mean that mm -hmm. when it comes to and we know that unfortunately it took the jerry sandusky case uh in in you know that he was arrested in 2011 and the state has made some changes in law since then for us to focus really on adults committing these crimes violating children but it sounds from what i'm hearing that it's not cut and dried as much when there's a juvenile involved or a child involved. Right. I think, um, you know, for the last number of years, our firm and maybe many others have focused really um, 
specifically on understanding the Child Protective Services law and, you know, what are your duties of reporting and background checks under the Child Protective Services law. And, you know, maybe 18 months or so ago, I think we were getting some inquiries about child-on-child abuse that drove us back to see whether the Child Protective Services law gave clear um, guidance on, first of all, just reporting when it's a child-on-child offense or action, you know, is it excluded from the mandated reporting requirements? Is it covered? Is there an exemption to the exclusion? Yes, as I think Kathleen will be talking about later. But um, we sort of felt on this issue, it's really helpful to have a deep bench of knowledge because for all the reasons that Linda and Kathleen have outlined, it is incredibly uncomfortable and awkward uh, for the adults involved. You know, it's very uncomfortable for the institution who's involved, if it's a church or a school, confronting it. Um, It's very awkward for the families. And so if you're just giving we felt, you know, a legal response. Here is your Child Protective Services law mandated reporting duty. That's insufficient. Um, we need to tap, you know, a broader bench. We hope we have a deep bench in our firm, but we also saw the need to connect with the resources and the know-how, you know, of groups like Kathleen's and Linda's to understand this at a deeper level because clients contacting us don't just want a very sterile legal response. They want, you know, help and resources to understand Practically, you know, what do we do um, if we have an issue here? Do we need? Do we have a supervision issue? Do we have a duty to see? You know, if a child's being evaluated, are we, are we setting in place certain supervision kinds of standards? Um, so yeah, it's murky, it's uncomfortable, and it we feel like it has called for more than just a strictly, hey, you know, client inquiring. Here's a legal answer for you. Um, we want to send them. We want to give them more than that. And I think one of the things that's also happened in the last um, year or so, clearly one of the things that happened in the Child Protective Services law reforms was that there was increased penalties for failure to report. We're seeing more law enforcement district attorneys file charges for failure to report. Some of those have been against officials inside of child-serving agencies where what happened was between two youth. Mm -hmm. And so there may have been a level of, was this reportable? Should we have reported it? And so I think in some ways we've really struggled to say, we have to help people both understand the legal elements of it, but more importantly, if we really want to talk about prevention, um, which we all have wanted to do, particularly in the last couple years, is we have to face that fact of who are the victims and who are the people who are perpetrating those. All right, well, let's talk about mandated reporting because this is a result of uh, the Sandusky case that uh, the list of who is a mandated reporter has been expanded Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's being taken much more seriously by law enforcement by children services everyone involved in trying to protect children but when it comes to maybe when we're talking about uh, a juvenile that is 16 who has violated a child at the age of five Everyone looks at that and says, okay, we know that that is something that needs to be reported. What about, though, the, the, you know, a child is, say, is 10 years old, 9 years old, that has done sex, something sexual to that 5-year-old? Does that case to me need to be reported? I mean, is it required to be reported? Well, it is, and I think one of the things that's happened is that we have long had some exclusions from what we determined to be child abuse in Pennsylvania. One of them is on -on child-on-child incidences as it relates to consensual activities between kids um, and youth. And so in some ways, those exclusions, while they exist in the law, um, have confuse people as to, does that mean I have to make a report? And so it's really important for people to understand that there's a distinction between the exclusions. So for instance, you know, a parent who has a faith um, that uh, they don't have medical care for the child, that's an exclusion from child abuse potentially. But that doesn't mean we don't make that report. The same with child-on-child incidences. And so there's been some level of confusion that because certain things upon investigation could be determined not to be child abuse, some people have interpreted that to be, oh, I don't have a duty to report. That said, there's also this added complication because, you know, this is not black and white. Um, I think what you said is if somebody has a 15-year-old who offended on a 5-year-old, that's pretty black and white to them. If you have two 7-year-olds, and to what Linda said, it wasn't just one incident, but there's a 7-year-old who continues in the child care program and the after-school program to touch another child. And you, you intervene and you say, you know, you shouldn't do that. You have to respect boundaries. 
at what point does that do they pick up the phone and call someone? And part of that, whether we like it or not, the reality for mandated reporters is they do think what will happen in response to this. And so just all of these things we talked about of is there access to treatment? Is will will is children and youth, is law enforcement, is anyone really prepared to deal with these cases, particularly where they're closer in age, they're more inappropriate behavior versus offending? And so it gets really pretty difficult for folks, but I think we continue to go back to there is no exclusion from reporting, but that is something that really does confuse people at the same time. I'm going to tell you, and you just used the word confused. (laughs) Uh, I understand everything you said. But I don't know whether you answered my question yeah. or not. You should. I mean, you should. I mean, you. It, you know, the. And in a lot of ways, you should um, report these calls because, again, at the end of the day, it may determine. Oftentimes, this happens. It may not be determined to be child abuse, but there's still a need for reporting and for someone outside of you, the child care provider, or you, the physician, to come in and and say, okay, well, let's let's do some evaluation. Let's talk to these these two youth involved. The other thing that's really important to remember is there's an issue of consent here um, and legally under in Pennsylvania a child under the age of 13 can't consent so sometimes you'll hear people say well it was two 10 year olds and it was consensual mm. you know there's a lot that goes inside of that because technically under the law neither party could consent the other thing that Linda raised earlier that was really important is an issue of abilities so sometimes we think about it the age difference the 15 year old to the five year old but what if it is um, uh, an, a, a, another child who's autistic who is being victimized by someone who's not autistic or has some other physical or intellectual... Maybe even physical yes, size. Yes. So bottom line is, yes, you should make the report. At the end of the day, that's the role of the Children and Youth Agency, which gets me back to my earlier report and to law enforcement, but a lot of these won't go the law enforcement path, but gets me back to my earlier point of we're still struggling to get it right and have the resources adult-to-child offenses, let alone child-to-child offenses. There's so much more to talk about. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News. And all things regional, I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, child sexual abuse that is uh, perpetrated by uh, those under the 18, other children in some cases. I guess uh, anyone under the 18 can be considered a child, and uh, child sexual abuses that are perpetrated by those under the 18, uh, under the age of 18. Our guest today, Ann Martin, an attorney with Gibble, Crable, and Hess, who specializes in abuse cases and Title IX issues, Kathy Palm, director of the Center for Children's Justice, and Linda Crockett, director of Safe Church safe places at Samaritan Counseling Center. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Also, you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, the phone number 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call from Heather in Swatara. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, um, my comment is is that I am in my 40s and I have three amazing kids and I'm pretty confident, but I wasn't always like that. Um, there was a time in my life when I was younger and I was sexually abused by a family member and um, it was a teenage family member and I was very young and it lasted for some time. And um, in my family, it was a big secret and nobody talked about it and... When I had kids, I talked about it, and I my kids knew everything about it, everything that happened, and I made I wanted to make sure that never happened to them. And since that, um, when I was growing up, I had zero self worth. But because of that, and I've lived with it every day of my life. But when I got counseling um, in my thirties, it really changed my whole perspective on who I was, the value of me, and I I, I respect that you guys are talking about this because. The more we talk about it, the less likely it is to happen. 
Heather, thank you very much for your call. Sorry that you went through that, but again, thank you for your testimony. Thank you very much. I was just going to say kudos to Heather. I mean, I think this is one of the things is that if um, if you are a survivor, if you have children, um, I can speak to that from my own experience. We have a tendency to have the kids who know more um, potentially on the block, which has its benefits, and sometimes you also have to explain to parents why your kids are very open about what their body parts are and things like that. And so I really, really respect the fact that you took your own experience and made sure that the next generation of kids feels empowered to both know their bodies and to speak up if they need to. Absolutely. And I think Heather really brings up a good point about talking about it. You know, she's had conversations with her own kids. At Samaritan Safe Church and Safe Places, we work a lot with institutions, churches, and other youth-serving institutions, and we know it's not enough to just focus on prevention of child sexual abuse. We also need to focus on the many adult survivors who are within the institution, who also need to be given safe space to heal and tap into their wisdom because survivors who have healed have much wisdom to share with the rest of us. We do a lot of teaching, and I think I don't say we, just Samaritan, but I think in the field, about how to skillfully talk to a child we suspect may have been sexually abused. How do we have that conversation? What are the signs, the red flags? Well, let's talk about that. How do you have that conversation? When it's a child who we suspect has been sexually abused, we need to understand what some of the red flags are, what some of the indicators are. It could be withdrawal. It could be um, a body image issue. It could be depression. It could be a young child that is uh, dif- has difficulty going to the bathroom when before they were totally potty trained. There's a range of flags that we need to teach people to recognize. And when they recognize a couple of those things, it's okay to have a conversation with the child that says, look, I've noticed this, this, and this about your behavior, and I'm concerned. And I wonder, sometimes when kids act in this way, it's because someone has hurt them or upset them in some way. Has somebody hurt you in some way or upset you in some way as a way to get into a conversation? What we don't do, though, is teach adults how to have conversations with kids who have sexually problematic behavior. Adults don't have any clue. But yet, you know, we can say to a kid when we find that eight-year-old who has been um, caught acting out with a six-year-old and he or she's been told to stop and it's persisting. What do we say to that kid? You know, we can acknowledge that some kids your age have sexual feelings towards younger kids. Often they don't really understand why and they end up hurting or scaring another child. Have you ever had these kind of feelings? Because if you have, I really need to know about it, you know? So there are ways to get into conversations with kids. And if they have done sexual harm, and suppose we had to make that mandated report, it doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning. You know, we have to be able to talk to that kid and say, I'm concerned about your safety, about your well-being. There are other kids who struggle with similar problems. Victims think they're the only ones. Kids who offend think they're the only ones. They need to know it's not just them. But I want to go back to something you said earlier, Linda. You said that we don't want to label those who perpetrate. Okay, but aren't there some kids, and by kids, I mean maybe some of the older juveniles, some of the older adolescents from maybe 12 on up, that do show some signs that they could be sexually violent, or that they do show, show some signs of, you know, I have a, a question here from a listener who wants to know, uh, you know, are there signs of, of children showing signs of being a pedophile? That, okay, that their interest in other children sexually, okay, we know it's not normal, but it goes beyond just exploring or doing some acting out, as you called it. Mm -hmm. At the edge, we could have children like that, but what we don't want to do is take the majority of kids who are not many offenders or budding pedophiles 
and put them into treatment or give them labels that assumes they are while also holding on to the reality there are some kids who at a very young age are showing troubling signs, which is why getting a kid, being able to interrupt that path to perpetration, to be able to teach adults how to recognize what's healthy and normal behavior for a kid this age, what's concerning behavior, what's problematic and abusive behavior. We don't do well with differentiating what those different behaviors are. But if we learn to do that, we learn to have these conversations with kids and we get them into the right kind of treatment. And that is not just sending the kid off to therapy. The best form of treatment for kids who are acting out problematically in sexual ways includes not only cognitive behavioral therapy most times, but it includes the whole family. The parents and the caregivers have to be highly involved. It includes parent education about healthy and appropriate sexuality and boundaries. It includes families making home safety plans for that child. It involves caregivers such as schools or churches making safety plans that are aligned. It involves teaching that kid impulse control, teaching that kid to regulate their emotions. So there's a lot that goes into it, but it involves a whole system. You can't just put the kid into therapy and say, fix this. Mm -hmm. Those have poor outcomes. Let me take another phone call before we go on. Nancy, it's in Harrisburg. Nancy, you're on the air. Okay, thank you. You were talking about a child getting help, you know, and all that. Where does a person go to get that help and if they can't afford it, where can they go financially to get that help? Well, I think this is, you know, this gets to be where one of the things is, this is complicated because in some ways, some of what Linda said is absolutely true, conversations. But then you want to be careful to not cross a line to have too much of a conversation with a child where you potentially taint a level of information that does in, in, in affect an investigation and things like that. But um, this is one of the reasons I think um, our friends inside of Child Welfare would also say this is why it's a mandated report, because give a call to their systems, help, uh, hopefully they can help connect people to resources, even as we all acknowledge that there are two limited resources in general, particularly trauma-informed resources to deal with children of child sexual abuse, let, regardless of whether the offender is an adult or um, a, a youth. And so I would really encourage you um, to call your local children and youth agency and say, you know, is there some resources you can point to in our community? Start with one of the counselors if you have a, a county mental Health Association, your victim services provider, um, PCAR, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, has 51 affiliates um, in most counties. But that's, you know, where I would start to say, you know, where and how can we connect this child to resources? Just like we're seeing the victim services community be more responsive to male victims than they were five years ago or a decade ago, I think we're going to increasingly see people understand um, the need to be more responsive to youth who are victimized by other youth. I think the other interesting thing about about this is we've had a lot of conversations at this table about statute of limitations and policy reforms and one of the key things that's missing from all of that is what how big a chunk of these kids are actually victimized by another youth and all of the legal ramifications and legal realities that are already too short-changed for victims don't even apply to the youth that was assaulted by another youth so there really is a need and and there are um, as Linda said there is a percentage of youth who we really do need to interrupt and interrupt potentially with a law enforcement child welfare investigation that behavior so that it doesn't become more problematic and hopefully that youth will be connected to the right therapy so that it's not oh you're a perpetrator throw away the key but you're a perpetrator who you your recidivism rate can be very low if we get you the right care and and, and therapy nancy did you have a follow-up no that's it okay. I, I that's what i was more or less worried about and also if if you do happen to have a problem with uh, that you need a lawyer or anything, where would you go to get the lawyer to help a child out with that particular situation? Good question. Anne, is that something that you can address? Nancy, are you talking about a child who has um, been found to be, you know... If, if, you know if, if the child has found that and it's gone through the process and for some reason they have been... Um, I don't know, arrested or, or, or incarcerated or, or whatever, you know, where would a person go 
to find that out because I'm pretty sure not too many people would know what to do. So someone who specialized in juvenile law, criminal criminal defense with a juvenile law emphasis, um, you know, in the juvenile law system, there would be, you know, it's not the adult criminal conviction system, it's the potential adjudicator adjudication of delinquency, and I think you, that child would want to be represented by someone who had that kind of... But Nancy has a, a, you know, a real, and many of us do, have has a concern about being able to afford attorney. Yeah. I mean, we know that right. there are organizations, uh, if you call the County Bar Association, that maybe you can find an attorney. I mean, does that exist in, in this case, if there is a, uh, a, a child who is a perpetrator? Uh, that, and that's a great question. I'm not sure if like MidPen Legal or uh, you know Juvenile Law Center or other juvenile law pro bono organizations might be the place that I would start to inquire to see. And and I would just say in Pennsylvania, I mean, one of the things the strengths in Pennsylvania is that we really have been a, a leader in juvenile justice. There really is a very intentional effort in this um, state to balance, um, you know, giving restoration, helping someone heal and and be responsible for the actions they've taken, but in a way that's really benefits and is rehabilitative to the juvenile. So the other party you could think about calling just for some background and guidance is the juvenile probation department inside of your county because they ultimately will know. They'll know who are the best providers and the smartest folks if in fact the person you're calling about is a juvenile who potentially is offended versus a juvenile who's been a victim. We had uh, an email here from a listener says a concern is that it's been well documented that uh, most pedophiles uh, have been victims when they were kids. How many pedophiles has someone like Sandusky created in the last 50 years as an adult? Are his victims going to be tracked and watched to see if they abuse others? First of all, let's make sure that's factual. Uh, yeah. many, many of these uh, kids who do perpetrate, have they been abused themselves? That is one of the mythologies that existed in the field, and it's been corrected by a lot of research over the last decade, most of the kids with sexually problematic behavior acting towards other kids have not themselves been sexually abused. We used to believe it was more of a cause and effect. We know now that there are multi-causal factors, there are risk factors that would add weight to the risk of a child possibly acting out with problematic behavior. And there are also protective factors. So when we see a child with some of the risk factors and we recognize them, our role as adults, as caregivers, is to how can I add more protective factors to the other side of that scale so I can start to swing this pendulum a little bit the other way. But I also want to speak to the issue um, that the caller raised about uh, adult offenders all having been sexually abused as children. That's also one of the things that was widely believed in the field, but not anymore. We have uh, multiple studies, especially done within the criminal justice system, where child sexual offenders will say they have been molested as children, but then when they're asked follow-ups with polygraphs and consequences, the rate drops down from about 70 positive to maybe 40% positive. So in fact, most adult offenders have not been sexually abused as children mm-hmm. either. Well, and I and I just want to say something about that. As a survivor, I, I one of the things that always troubles me about conversations about child sexual abuse is that it is such doom and gloom. And you really can leave people who are in the audience believing that this is a curse that will forever haunt you. And it is reality that it is a part of who you are and it will always be a part of you. But I think people really have to understand that you can go on, particularly with the proper supports and therapy, to have very healthy relationships and a very healthy life. And so I get nervous when people so um, easily tout statistics that are wrong about the degree to which if you've been a victim, you are likely to go on and, and victimize because that really does one more time do a disservice to the victims who, in fact, it should be a call to action to say, let's immediately, when we know someone has, if they disclose or we discover that they have been victimized particularly as a child, let's immediately connect them to trauma-informed care and therapy because that trajectory can change from that moment forward. And so I just want to say to everyone who's listening, if you're a survivor, if you're being victimized right now, look for help. Trust in the fact that you can have a life that is very different than sometimes what we hear and read in the newspapers going forward. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're discussing a very serious topic today and one that doesn't get a whole lot of attention really in our society, and that is uh, child sexual abuse that is perpetrated by other children, children under the age of 18. Happens much more often than what you think. Our guest, Kathy Palm, Director of the Center for Children's Justice. Linda Crockett, Director of Safe Church, Safe Places at Samaritan Counseling Center. And Ann Martin, an attorney with Gibble, Crable, and Hess, who specializes in abuse cases and Title IX issues. And we're going to talk about Title IX and the part of schools in just a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's go to John in Harrisburg. John, you're on the air. Hello. Ah, uh, yes. Um, everybody's talking about um, um, the victims, and I and I really, really, uh, let's say, uh, um, take side with them. But then the perpetrators are not demons as well, because um, they do not have tools to work with in the first place. So, and as long as they are children, uh, we litig- uh, we litigating children, that would be absurd. So, so uh, my, my my stuff is that. Uh, what, I mean, it's not, it's, not about, it's, it's not about treating the wound, but actually preventing the wound from occurring. All right, so thank what you. Is, All right, what th- is the system doing to prevent these kids from um, going this way in the first place? Well, John, thank you very much for your call. Good point. Absolutely. The first thing I want to say is um, we, we, any of us who are skilled in this field know that words like demons and monsters really does a disservice to children because um, the, frank, the fact of the matter is anyone who saw Jerry Sandusky would have said he didn't look like a demon or a monster. He looked like a really nice guy. My son once described him as, you got to be wrong, Mom, because he's a football coach grandfather. So I think it's really important what our language is. It is that we need to focus on perpetrators and helping people understand it. And you're right. We couldn't agree with you more. Prevention, prevention, prevention. The fact of the matter is we're still trying to get comfortable with so much about child sexual abuse. And it's only now that we're starting to say it's not we got to stop being about intervening. We do still need to be about interrupting and intervening, but we've got to be preventing it in the first place because it has such a ripple effect in so many ways in our society. Right, so specifically what he's talking about, how to prevent. I mean, we discussed having the conversation with a child who was acting out, but even to, before it gets to that point. Well, I think part of it is some of what we've talked about is just organizational things. Mm-hmm. So if you run a church program, do you think about it? Now we've got people a little bit on notice saying, okay, well, we're going to have a policy that says no adult can be alone with a child in the church facility or in the school. But have you really thought about like what's the access of youth to each other? Um, what do you do? Imagine, again, people are uncomfortable talking about sexual issues in, with children in general. Now what do you do if you're inside an organization and a child comes forward and says, you know, Johnny's touching me this way or Jose's doing this to me, you know, now do you just dismiss them or do you invite them to further conversation? Um, and it's so we have to get organizations that serve youth comfortable with talking about um, sexual issues around kids. We have to think through policies of it's not just adult to child interactions, but youth to youth interactions. Do you have the right policies in place? So there's a whole network of conversation people are starting to have that we weren't having five years ago. Linda said earlier about uh, the stranger danger and that is so true that over the the past 20 years we've talked so much to our kids about uh, you don't go away with strangers you you know you don't do anything with strangers that way but having this conversation I'm sure there are people who are thinking this is frightening all right <laughs> what about and I'll give just give an example I want to hire a babysitter how do I know that that kid, should I even be thinking about that, about whether this this young adult or this uh, teenager that I'm going to hire as a babysitter is someone I can trust with my child or with my children? That's a really good question. I, think I try to ask good questions. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> I think you need to think really hard about it. You need to do everything you can to vet that babysitter every much as you would vet a daycare provider for your young child. Certainly, it should be somebody you know and trust for a long period of time. You know their family well, but that doesn't even preclude this kind of behavior. 
Um, I am actually a big believer, and this is on a personal level, for things like nanny webcams, you know, always having my kids visible. You know, I have grandchildren now, and if they have a caregiver, I want to know, I want to be able to tune in at any time and know what's going on there. But I also want to comment on what the caller said about prevention, because that is so important. And I think those of us who are, whether we're parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, professionals in a field, if we're able to give kids who seem to be struggling and have risk factors, if we're able to pile on more protective factors, that can interrupt that path and stop it from happening in the first place. For example, a kid that has multiple risk factors for problematic sexual behavior could be a kid where there's currently high levels of family stress. They've got overly restrictive or overly permissive parenting. Um, they may have learning disabilities. They may have behavioral disorders. There may be some kind of maltreatment or just kind of detachment at home so the parents are super busy and not involved. They may have exposure, a lot of exposure, to sexually explicit materials on the internet. Violent porn in particular increases the risk factor for a child acting out with problematic sexual behavior. So if we can pile on more protective factors, if we know that a kid has those risk factors, we may in fact be able to interrupt that path to acting out. And as far as prevention goes, I think what one of the things we hope to accomplish October 5 is to talk about institutional um, you know, ways of ensuring that we all are aware if we're a youth-serving institution, what are our duties of care? What's our standard of care that we need to put in place and make sure that our practices and our habits and our policies are all supportive of, yes, the potential for adult um, abuse of children, but then recognizing this more uh, maybe not so not so acknowledged area of potential for child-on-child abuse. So, how? yeah. Oh, and uh, since you brought it up and right. definitely wanted to mention, it's one of the reasons we're having this conversation today, yeah. is the workshops in October. Um, and and I do want to come back to you with some other questions, but uh, since you brought it up, uh, Linda, the, the uh, workshops, October 5th and October 26th, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so talk about these workshops. Where are they? What will people learn? What will be discussed? And, uh, you know, another question is, is this something that is open to the public? Yes, both workshops are open to the public. The one that takes place first on October the 5th is going to be held at the Eden Resort, just outside of Lancaster, Mm -hmm. just outside of Lancaster. Uh, You can register at the door, or you can pre-register. You can go to the website of Gibble, Crable, and Hess and register. Our website will take you there. What we really want to do is give resources to the community. I'll be speaking, I have a two-hour workshop to unpack what is sexually problematic behavior in children under 12 and in adolescence. How do we recognize that? How do we respond? How do we handle it in institutions as well as how do we handle it if it's our child? And Anne is going to be speaking about duty of care under Title IX. All of the conversation these days is about Title IX and campus sexual assaults, but yet the Associated Press investigation that was uh, publicized pretty heavily in May of this year revealed over a four-year period over 17,000 sexual assaults of students by other students in elementary in K through in in elementary school through grade 12 and that's just the tip of the iceberg those are the documented assaults we had elementary kids assaulting other kids so we need to understand duty of care And then Kathy is going to be describing the complexity of the mandated reporting laws, filling in a lot of the gaps that is not filled in in much of the mandated reporter training. We have people that come away from some of the trainings and say, nobody ever talked to me and told me I had to report it if it was two kids. I thought I didn't have to report it unless the person was over 14. You know, so there's a lot of confusion about that. So the second one is where? The second one is in Lebanon, and that's going to be at the YMCA in Lebanon. It's Thursday, October 26th. It is sponsored by um, Evangelical Seminary 
in Lebanon, and you can register on their website or on the Samaritan uh, Safe Church website. Okay. So, Anne, let me get back to you. Title IX, mm-hmm. uh, we just had a discussion about Title IX and sexual assault on campuses a few weeks ago right. in the program. But as Linda pointed out, Title IX has to do with uh, discrimination based on sex. How does that relate to child sexual abuse and other the, being perpetrated by other children? Right. Well, I think, you know, the seminal Title IX case that has given us uh, so much of the language that we still use in interpreting Title IX, um, you know, stemmed from a case where a fifth grade classmate was um, subjected to, you know, unwanted uh, sexual advances, both touch and verbal, by a fifth grade classmate over a period of, you know, five months. Mother repeatedly complains to the school. Daughter repeatedly complains complaints to the school. The school has a very ineffectual response. Um, and ultimately, you know, our U.S. Supreme Court found that this, you know, this daughter or this child had been deprived of, you know, her educational opportunity or had a limited benefit from her educational opportunity because of these repeated, this, you know, hostile environment that was created by this classmate. So, um, you know, that that shows us right there when we talk about Title IX and we only think of it in terms of campus sexual assault, we're forgetting even just the fundamental inter- <laughs> underpinnings of how we, how we got our, you know, um, hostile environment and our, you know, severe, per- pervasive kind of uh, kind of standard for what constitutes uh, a Title IX claim. And so, yes, if you're a federally, if you're accepting any kind of federal funding and you're a K to 12 educational institution or program, then you you need to be aware that Title IX is applicable to you and not just to you know the second or the college you know campus kind of. Um, climate. And we've just had last Friday um, some new developments in Title IX. We had a, a rescission or a withdrawal of two key interpretive documents that many uh, institutions had relied up upon since 2011 and 2014. Those were rescinded, withdrawn, and we got a little bit of an interim kind of guidance and a question and answer document that is um, now available, you know, to help uh institutions figure out what are my interim responsibilities while the Department of Education is engaging in another round of comment and rulemaking. And some of the key uh, kind of interpretive policy guidelines have been, you know, clearly backed away from. Um, and so we're, we're getting, you know, we have to be aware, schools have to be aware, and we hope to talk to any any educators that show up on October 5. We want to make them aware, hey, if you didn't know that Title IX applied to you in the first place, it does, and you're, you're joining the conversation at an opportune time because there's some new... There's some new interpretive guidance on hand. And it, it, oh, I was just going to say, it's ironic. At the same time, we're seeing some changes on Title IX at the federal level interpretation. You have Governor Wolf and bipartisan lawmakers and the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and a bunch of folks who are coming together with this It's On Us campaign, which started out as a thought about campus and is now recognizing we really have to be thinking about protections um, and, and and rights and, and, and prevention and education, K through 12 and beyond. Mm-hmm. So, And there's so many people, unfortunately, when they think of Title IX, think of sports, mm-hmm, right. uh, male and female sports, and don't think about the other aspects of it. Let's take another phone call from Jack in Orwigsburg. Jack, you're on the air. Hey, hi, good morning. Yes. Um, I'm familiar with a program in the um, Reading area that takes a, um, I would characterize it as a, um, oh, a combination behavioral uh, perpetrator model with children who have been encouraged by the juvenile justice system to repeat a defense. And I'm wondering if um, what the panelists view of, uh, of that sort of treatment approach is. And it's one of which the polygraph is used regularly to, uh, you know, to verify you know, the veracity of uh, thoughts, feelings, actions, or whatever on a regular basis. And um, wherein the children are all um, and these are children who from, oh, I don't know, 19 down, who are all um, presented with the treatment approach that they are, in fact, uh, criminals and some criminal behaviors. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jack, Jack so, thank you very much for your call. What do you, what do you, I, I hate to cut him short, but we only have about three minutes left. Those kind of approaches still exist, but the research is showing us that they are not effective. We're hoping that they will get changed over time. The approaches like polygraph models are taken straight from the playbook for how we treat adult sexual offenders. Kids are so different 
in their reasons for the sexually inappropriate behavior and in the way they respond to treatment. So that kind of program is not recognized by research as being one of the most effective models or really even an effective model for treating children under the age of 18. Uh, a couple of emails here. I used to work for a company where we were all mandated reporters. They also say that as a mandated reporter should be kept anonymous. I've had uh, multiple cases where I mandated reported and my name was dropped to the family of the student that I had to mandate report uh, a, a situation for. How do we provide protection against retaliation from families from mandated reporters? Can well, the good news is um, of the 24 new laws that were enacted in th- between 2013 and 2015, there is some real strength about retaliation and intimidation um, and in fact your name it's not just that um, the police or child welfare needs to keep your name anonymous but if you report to your own school or institution they too have to have that protection in place um, and there are now um, uh, triggers by which you can pursue action inside of your institution if in fact you've not been something you reported and somehow now you're being at- retaliated or intimidated because of it another uh, email here what about the fact that children are watching all the sexuality on television, etc.? This has got to be an influence. I was abused by an older cousin who had been watching pornography while his mom slept. Got about a minute left. Just absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the realities is that the exposure to all things sexual is happening at a much earlier age in many different ways, even where parents are trying to be productive. I was saying to these guys this morning, I downloaded an app for my seven-year-old, checked the age requirements and things like that. Well, it turns out there's all these advertisements that are now playing in between the game that he's playing. And it took me by surprise the content of the advertisement that's happening. Um, And I guess that's why the app was free. Um, So it's really important for parents to understand that and to limit the exposure, but we clearly can't discount the fact that kids are being exposed to sexual behaviors, kids are being sexualized at a much earlier age, and that all gets back to the bigger issue of prevention, the bigger issue of how do we get kids to have healthy boundaries, to respect themselves, and to really think through what are pretty complicated things when it comes to sexuality. Well, this obviously is a topic that deserves much more attention, uh, and those who want to learn more can go to the websites of the three organizations here. We have links on our website, witf.org, and again, there are the workshops October 5th in Lancaster, October 26th in Lebanon. Linda Crockett's Director of Safe Church, Safe Places at Samaritan Counseling Center. Kathy Palm, Director of the Center for Children's Justice. Ann Martin, an attorney with Gibble Crable Hess, who specializes in abuse cases and Title IX issues. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, well, we have a a couple different segments on tomorrow's program, including the author of a book who's written a story about the Nazi Titanic. Interesting book, and again, a little-known story in history. It comes up on tomorrow's show. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.